0: How many have read Isaiah through sometime in the last two weeks, within the last two weeks? Would you raise your hand? One person? I gave you an assignment two weeks ago to start reading the book of Isaiah. Now, what are you going to say to him when you meet him in glory about how much you read his book? Hmm. Well, you missed something. I hope you'll remedy it throughout this uh, Christmas season. This is one of the most magnificent of books. Isaiah is the greatest of the prophets, and he's a superb master of language. If you enjoy beautiful rolling cadences and marvelous uh, passages of literature, you'd you'd enjoy this book alone for that purpose. And uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is the greatest revelation of Christ that you have in the Old Testament. So much so it's sometimes called the gospel according to Isaiah. And uh, if you haven't acquainted yourselves with these magnificent prophetic passages looking forward to Christ, you've missed some of the richness and depth of the scriptures. It's also one of the great proofs of the that the Bible is the word of God, because Isaiah lived some 720 years before Christ. Yet the uh, passages, the many, many passages that uh, look forward to the uh, Messiah in this book are so clearly pointing forward to Christ and fulfilled in him that it constitutes an, an unanswerable argument for the divine inspiration of the book. Anytime we approach a new book, we always want to look for a key. I'm afraid this is uh, sometimes a a bit, uh, uh, a rather weak approach to a book. I'm afraid sometimes we talk of these Bible books as though they were locked houses, barred and shuttered, and that you can't get anything out of them unless you find a key. And I'm afraid also that some of us Uh, act almost as though the only duly licensed real estate agents were the Bible teachers and that they have the key and you have to wait till you find a Bible teacher to get a key to the book. Now, these scriptural books are not like that. They're more like national parks. They're open to everyone to roam in and a delight to explore all by yourself But each park has a peculiar characteristic all its own that marks it out from the others, and you appreciate a park better if you know what that characteristic is. I enjoy going to the great national parks that we have here in the West, so many of them, and I've learned to appreciate some of the distinct characteristics of each. If you want something, if you want nature in a rather peculiar mood, go to Yellowstone Park. There she pulls all the tricks out of her bag and uh, throws everything in together. If you want to see uh, mountain grandeur and cool lakes, and mountain beauty, I would strongly recommend Glacier Park in Montana. If you want to be awed and humbled and stirred, then go to the Grand Canyon. If you are looking for A quiet valley to rest and reflect in. Yosemite can't be beat. That is on any other time than midsummer when some 20,000 people are in the valley with you. And I think sometimes these books of the Bible are like this. The book of Revelation to me is very much like the Yellowstone National Park. It's full of spouting geysers and and all kinds of weird uh, symbolism and formations of every kind. The Gospel of John is more like the uh, Yosemite Park. It's quiet and deep and reverent. But there's no question but what the book of Isaiah is like the Grand Canyon. It's the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Geologists tell us that the Grand Canyon is a miniature history of the earth, kind of a condensed history, a pocket volume of the past, if you like. And the book of Isaiah has long been recognized as a miniature Bible. I'm not at all sure that we could claim that the order in which our books are placed in the Bible is divinely inspired, though I'm very inclined to think so myself, because uh, there is a a, a unique arrangement of the Bible books. They're not according to the way they're written by any means, and uh, I think the arrangement is highly significant. And the interesting thing is, the book of Isaiah is the exact middle of the Bible. It comes right at the center. And it's a, it's called a miniature Bible. How many books does the Bible have? Some of you bright young people, can you tell me? Sixty-six. How many chapters does Isaiah have? Sixty-six. And the, how many books are there in the Old Testament? 39 and therefore 27 in the New Testament. And the book of Isaiah divides exactly in that way. The first half of the book are the first 39 chapters. There's a distinct division at chapter, beginning with chapter 40. So the last 27 books constitute the last division of this book. And uh, the New Testament, as you know, begins with the With the history of John the Baptist as he came to announce the coming of Christ, the forerunner. And it ends in the book of Revelation with the new heavens and the new earth. Now if you begin the, if you read in the book of Isaiah at chapter 40, which begins the last half of it, you'll find that chapter 40 is the prophetic passage that predicts the coming of John the Baptist. Uh, a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And this, John says, was fulfilled by him when he came. And if you read on to the end of the book, you'll find in chapter 66, it speaks of the new heavens and the new earth that God has created. So you'll find a very, very close and remarkable uh, uh, analogy parallel with the Bible here in this book. Now, visitors to the Grand Canyon are always astonished at one thing when they go down into that uh, tremendous canyon. You stand at the rim and look out over the vast, jumbled, silent canyon uh, down to the Colorado River, which is but a silver thread over a mile below you. And uh, sooner or later, some tourist will gasp in amazement and say, I don't understand how a little tiny thing like that river could carve a great canyon like this. And uh, they're amazed at that concept. Now, you read the book of Isaiah thoughtfully and carefully, and uh, you sense immediately the grandeur and the power of God. This is the greatest book to set forth the beauty of, uh, and the majesty of God in all the Bible. You can hear the rugged, rolling cadences of language in this book and feel the insignificance of man as compared with the might and wisdom and majesty of God. And if you ask yourself, how could a a, a man, just a, a human being like Isaiah, write a book like this? There's hardly any answer to it. Uh, we know something about Isaiah, but not very much as a man. He lived during the reign of four kings of Judah: Uzziah, and Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah. His ministry began some 720 years before Christ, when, uh, at the time when the northern kingdom of Israel, the twelve tribes of the north, was being carried away into captivity by. Sennacherib, the Assyrian invader who came down and uh, captured uh, the northern kingdom. And uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, was plunged into idolatry at the end of Isaiah's reign in uh, ministry in 695 AD and was carried captive into Babylon so that this minister, this prophet, His ministry spans the time between the captivity of the northern kingdom and the captivity of the southern kingdom. His ministry lasted about 50 years. And he was contemporaneous with with the prophet Amos and Hosea and of Micah. These uh, men were all his contemporaries. And tradition tells us that Isaiah the prophet was martyred under the reign of Manasseh. One of the most wicked kings of the that the Old Testament records that he was hidden in a, that he hid in a hollow tree to escape the reign of Manasseh, and the soldiers of the king, knowing that he was there in that in that tree, brought a saw and sawed the tree down with him in the in the heart of it, and so he was sawn asunder and there are some uh, writers uh, some scholars who feel that this is what the uh, epistle to the Hebrews refers to in the great chapter of the heroes of faith when it speaks of some whose for whose faith they were sawn asunder. This would be the prophet Isaiah. Now he was the human author of this book and uh, it's amazing to think of a man writing language as beautiful as this and and giving such tremendous revelations as you find in this book. Just as visitors, however, when they go down to the Colorado River and take the long trail down, uh, are no longer, though, amazed at how a river could carve out a great canyon. Because when you stand beside that river, you can actually hear at times the grinding rocks that are carried along by the force of that stream, and you sense the tremendous force of this river. And you're aware that there's an invisible force at work. And that's something of the sensation, I think. You get in reading the, letter, uh, the uh, book of Isaiah. Here's a, here's, a, here's a man carried along by a, an amazing force and speaking these magnificent prophecies because of it. You get uh, an insight into the power of these Old Testament prophets, remember, in Peter's letter. Uh, recall how Peter, writing in, second, in his second letter, says of these prophets. Uh, he says, first of all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That's not quite accurate in translation. It should be, no prophecy of Scripture arises out of one's own uh, origin. But, he says, prophecy came by the impulse of, uh, not by the impulse of men, but of man, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And thus, this is the explanation of the book of Isaiah. Now, the amazing thing is that these prophets who spoke like this were oftentimes very much aware that there was a invisible power within them, speaking through them, and that what they spoke and wrote was was oftentimes greater than they were. And they actually searched through their own writings after they wrote them to discover hidden truth. They ministered to themselves in that sense. They studied their own writings. Peter tells that uh, that to us again. He says in his first letter that uh, this is what took place. That these men, he says in in chapter 1 of the first letter... The prophets who prophesied of the grace it was to be yours searched and inquired about this salvation. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory, and it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things which have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which the angels desire to look. Now, if any key is needed to this book, this is it. Here's a a man who is searching for something. And Peter says he was searching about this salvation that's to come from God. And the interesting thing is the meaning of the name Isaiah is Jehovah, Jehovah's salvation, the salvation of Jehovah. Now, what set this man searching? Why does he wrestle so long over his own writings and try to puzzle this matter out? Well, you read the book and you'll see his problem. Isaiah lived in a time of stress in the nation, when the naked forces of humanity were very close to the surface and visible, very much like in our own day. And he was terribly bothered over the innate rebelliousness of man. As he cries out in the opening chapter, he says, the nation has deliberately forsaken the ways of God, and their stupid obstinacy is simply beyond him. Why, he says, even the ox knows his owner, and the ass, his master's crib, even an animal knows where his bread is buttered, uh, where he gets blessing and help from. But he says, not Israel. (laughs) They don't know where to go. (laughs) They're wandering off in in stupidity and ignorance, and he's amazed by this, he says that uh, uh, they are simply so stubborn and refuse to turn that he cannot understand it, and the other nations around are just as bad as he sees them, and then he's given a vision of God, and he sees God in awful purity. There's that amazing revelation of God in the sixth chapter of this letter of this book. A God of awful purity and holiness. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. And each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Imagine this as he's in the temple one day. He sees God Uh, when uh, in the the year that King Uzziah died, when the throne was vacant, he saw the throne that was never vacant. He saw a God of wrath and power. And as you read on, you see it beautifully described how God has power to shake the earth to its foundations, a God of immensity and infinity mighty and terrible, speaking in thunder and traveling in strength. And Isaiah's question is, how can such a God do anything but destroy the rebellious creatures th- that are men? And his question is, where is salvation for man like this? And his problem goes worse, grows worse in the second part of this book when he is made aware of the helplessness of man. Chapter 40 begins on that note, the second half of the book. Uh, the uh, As, as we've said already, there's this prophetic passage concerning John the Baptist. And uh, verse 6 says, a voice says, cry, cry, go to this nation now and cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Well, he says, cry, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That is, man is like grass. He's just temporary, just here for a little while. His life is but a short time, and then it's over, and he's like the grass that withers and fades. And he sees in this section the helplessness of man, the utter uh, impotency and helplessness as man stumbles blindly on to his doom. And then, you see, the answer begins to come. For throughout this book, woven beautifully throughout it, in the warp and woof of this magnificent book, there's a, an ever-growing revelation of the love of God, the salvation of Jehovah found in the figure of someone who is to come, the Messiah, the servant of God. At first, it's very dim and shadowy. And gradually it grows brighter and brighter until in chapter 53, the figure of Christ just steps right out of the page. And you can't help but see him. He just fills the whole horizon in this book. And you recognize that here is the one who's the answer. You see, what uh, what Isaiah was given to show us was that the God of transcendent glory that he saw in chapter 6, the God who frightened him. So that he cried out and said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That God becomes the one who was despised and rejected of men, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, who was oppressed and afflicted and opened not his mouth, and yet he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And Isaiah saw how the love of God broke the back of man's rebelliousness and supplied the need of his helplessness. And thus the issue at last is a a day he sees beyond all the darkness and all the gloom and the pessimism, and through across the coming centuries, he sees to the day when there shall come a morning without clouds. When the day of righteousness shall come at last. And all God's glory shall fill the earth. And men shall make war no more. And they shall beat their their plows, their swords into, into pruning hooks. And their spears into plows. And uh, nothing shall hurt or destroy in all God's holy mountain. Now. That's the book of Isaiah. You can find these two themes brought together in the, in the book of Revelation. Remember in the opening of Revelation, John sees a mighty vision of God. And he says, he, he says I saw a throne. And in the midst of the throne, a lamb. And there are the two themes of Isaiah, a throne and a lamb. In chapter 6, you see the throne. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated upon a throne. In chapter 53, you find the lamb. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. But this is God's way, you see. God doesn't come with power and might and warfare to wipe men off the face of the earth. That's the only way we have of solving our problems. But as God declares to Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. God's method is to break through the rebelliousness of man, not by might, not by power, but by love. By love, by suffering love. And when he does, and the heart is opened by that then all the majesty and the might and the power of God are poured into that life to make it to to bring it to the fulfillment that God has in mind for human hearts now it's remarkable how up to date we'll find this book you read it through and you'll find that the first part of the book is a, a setting forth of the threat of the kingdom of, of, of the king of assyria and the latter half of the book is the threat of the kingdom of Babylon. And the middle part of the book, chapters 37, 38, and 39, are a historical uh, sandwich, an interlude, put in here to carry us over from Assyria to Babylon. Now, this is very interesting because these are the two forces that are in the world today and have been all along. The king of Assyria, throughout this book, stands for the power of godlessness and the philosophy of godlessness. The idea that there is no God, that we can live as we please, that men are but creatures, that we're in a deterministic, materialistic universe that runs on its clanking, grinding way and there's nothing we can do about it but strive to enjoy ourselves and make the most of things, that might is right and uh, Man has no one to answer to but himself. Now, that's the Assyrian philosophy. And you recognize that this is so prominent and dominant in our own day. This is the philosophy behind communism. And the second power of this book is the power of Babylon. And Babylon is always in Scripture the symbol of of apostasy, of religious wrong, of religious error and deceit. And uh, this is, again, what we're experiencing today on every side. The voices to which we ought to be able to look for guidance, the voice of the church in many places, in many cases, is a voice that's crying out against God and really preaching the things that are uh, that make for, for wrongdoing and for destruction in human life. So we're living in these very times. That's what the book of Isaiah says. And the dominant character of human life is basically rebellion and helplessness. Have you ever noticed how true that is? Just the other day I read in the papers a story of a man who was given a speeding ticket. And when the officer handed him the ticket, arrested him and stopped him and handed him the ticket, the man read it, handed it back to the, to the officer, threw his car into gear and sped off. And, of course, the the cop jumped in his car and started to chase him. And they wound up in a high-speed chase in which the man finally ran his car off the road and destroyed it. And it ended up with the death of himself and his six-year-old daughter who was in the seat with him. Now, why did he do that? Just that innate rebelliousness of the human heart that does not want to be confronted with authority. That's the problem with mankind, isn't it? A young woman said to me just this week, I know what I ought to do, but I I have to confess I don't want to do it. (laughs) Why not? We all have this problem, don't we? Rebelliousness and helplessness. It's reflected in the sense of growing despair and futility that grips so many people today. The sense of loneliness that comes to us. This meaninglessness of life. And twice in this book, first once at the beginning and once toward the end, you find the great word of God to a world that's in the grip of rebellion and helplessness. God says in chapter 1, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Forgiveness. pardon. Again in chapter 55, verse one, "Ho everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, yea, come by, uh, let him come, yea, come by wine and milk, without money and without price. See? God's message to man is not condemnation. His message to man is, "Come, come. The salvation of Jehovah is available to all. And when a man begins at that place, as you find in the 53rd chapter, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He'll discover that there's an answer to his deepest need, that the rebellion is canceled and the helplessness is cured. And man is able to be what God intended him to be. I often think of that story. Uh, that occurred years ago, one of the great Bible teachers of England, uh, hurrying down to catch a train after one of the services at which he'd been speaking. And there was a man that hurried along in the, af, on the platform after him and caught him just as he was about to board the train. And he said to him, oh, sir, he said, you know, I was in your meeting tonight and I heard you tell about a way by which a man can find peace with God. And he said, I need help. I want to find my way to God. Can you help me? And the man said, I'm sorry. He said, I haven't time. I've got to catch this train. It's the last train tonight, but I'll tell you what you do. He said, take your Bible and find Isaiah 53 6. Go to the nearest lamp post. Turn to Isaiah 53 6. Stoop down low and go in at the first all and stand up straight and come out at the last all. And then he got aboard the train and off he went. And the man stood there puzzled for a minute, didn't know what to make of it. And then he said, well, I'll do what he said. So he took his Bible. The man had given him his Bible. He took his Bible and he went over to the nearest lamppost. And he said, now what did he say? Oh, yes, find Isaiah 53, 6. And he found it. All we like sheep have gone astray. Well, what does he mean now? Stoop down low and go in at the first stall. Stand up straight and come out at the last awl. And then he noted that the, the verse began with all, and it ended with all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Oh, he said, I see what he means. Admit that's the case with me. Stoop down low and go in at the first all. Acknowledge that this is the problem. I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. Well, then what? Well, stand up straight and come out at the last all. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore it, and in a moment the man saw it. And the next night at the meeting he came up and he brought the Bible up and he handed it to the gentleman. He said, "Here's your Bible." And he said, "I want you to know, I I went, I stooped down and went in at the first all, and I stood up straight and I came out at the last all." Well, that's Isaiah's message. You see, it's the message of the Bible, the message. The Word of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Well, let's stand up straight and uh, come out at the last all, Sidney. Anyone here tonight looking for this message? That's for you. Our Father, we thank you for this uh, marvelous Word of this ministry of this great prophet of old. When we think that this magnificent book was written over seven Long centuries before the Lord Jesus ever appeared on earth, and yet so beautifully and accurately and magnificently describes every aspect of His ministry, we can see that Thy hand is behind this all, and that You have provided for us this great and marvelous deliverance from ourselves. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to His own way. Lord, we pray that If there be among us those who are find themselves there, that they too will believe this wonderful message and stand up straight and come out at this last all. Thou hast laid on him our iniquity. He bore our transgressions, and because of this we are accepted in thy sight and can discover all the wonder that you have for us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Good night. God bless you.